I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. I'm sure you know Rebel Radio is sponsored by Finn. We're really happy to have them as a partner. I'm heading off to Italy next month, a uh, little bit of work and a little bit of holiday with family, and I got Finn doing research for me on things to do, travel arrangements, rental cars, trains, all that stuff. Basically, I use Finn to, to do everything I don't need to do myself, but I still need to get done. You can use them to book appointments, make calls, pay bills. Finn learns your preferences. You can save your passwords with them, all of that stuff. And it saves me hours and hours every week. Uh, I'm finding it really useful. I think you will too. What I love most about it is you can access the mobile app, email, website. You can call them. Whatever works best for you works best for Finn. They work around you. Just because you listen to Rebel Radio, I'm going to hook you up with a free trial. Go to fin.com slash rebel to try Finn for free. That's fin.com slash rebel, and you can try it out for free. I'd love to hear what you think of it, how you're using it. Leave us a comment or shoot me a note um, and just tell me what Finn's doing for you. That's fin.com slash rebel. Hey, it's Scott Nathan. You're listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up? What up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh -huh. Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I talk to the Rebels that are shaping youth culture. We find out how they do it, why they do it, and what you can do to get a little piece of the pie for yourself. We're also the only show to bring you new music every week from our friends over at EDM.com. I'm your host, Josh Levine, and my guest today, Scott Nathan, the talented photographer. Man, this guy has so many stories. He tells stories with his camera. Uh, he's got this great project called Confessional, where he's interviewed so far over 100 women. Well, he hasn't interviewed them. He puts the camera on them. Usually they're naked, and he just lets it sit there for a long period of time until all kind of stuff comes out with no words, but uh, on screen for us to see. That's a pretty amazing thing. 
Scott's also got a series on Medium called Bedtime Stories for Grown-Ups. Just amazing, amazing stories. My favorite one is The Whore Whisperer, but uh, he's got a great story about a con woman. He tells one about golfing with OJ. There's great stuff on there, and he's also going to give us some insight into how he's been able to get people to just give him stuff throughout his career and do him favors and help him get where he's going. It's pretty amazing stuff coming up from Scott Nathan right after our EDM.com track of the week. That was Oseal with Pretty Liar, the EDM.com track of the week. If you like that one, get over to EDM.com, check out more new music. And now let's get into the interview with Scott Nathan. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I'm excited to talk to you. You know, I, I wasn't familiar with your work until I heard from Amanda. And, uh, and anything she tells me, I take seriously. So... Cool. It's cool. I'm excited to meet you. And then now I've been reading all your stuff and just amazing, fantastic stories. And uh, I'm excited to dig into it. Cool. Um, so, but hearing you started in the music before you got into photography, what was your, what was your early experience with music? I mean, my earliest experience, the, the, the sort of seminal moment that changed my life when I was, I was, in seventh grade, so that would make me about 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And my dad, my dad owned like an electrical supplies, medical supplies and a janitorial supplies company. So basically like a big warehouse forklift kind of sure. business. And one of his clients was the Chicago Stadium where the Bulls and the Blackhawks played. Mm. So, and bands played there back then. Yeah. It was this great old, they called it the old barn. It was made of wood and it had a pipe organ. It's long gone. But uh, it was like a like an original six NHL stadium and, and uh, so my dad took me to see Kiss in 77. Nice. A live two tour. I draw like lips from the fire and the spitting blood and I'm just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. All I'm I sure. want to do is go to concerts. Yeah. Um, so, that was amazing. And then I'm like, can we do more of these? And my dad's like, yeah. So my second show was Queen. Nice. News of the World Tour, which wow. was the greatest concert I've ever seen. And yeah. the second greatest concert I've ever seen is the second time I saw Queen. Uh -huh. um, and uh, 
I was just a huge music fan. I mean, I probably had 1,500 pieces of vinyl. Yeah. I went to every concert I could get my hands on. Um, I played guitar. You know, never really played. I played, you know, I never really played in bands, but I'd sit in here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, then I went to college, and I became roommates with this guy at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and he was kind of like me. He had long hair. He was from L.A., and... I'd never really gotten into metal, but he kind of turned me on to all the great metal. Yeah. And then one day he says to me, he's like, you know what you should do for a living? And I was like, what? He's like, you should be like a rock and roll impresario or concert promoter. Like, this is, this is your love. And I'm like, it's a great idea. Yeah. So then I get a job interning for Faye Concerts, which is like the golden voice of Colorado. Okay. And it was like the greatest unpaid summer job ever. So I got a job working at Red Rocks, which I, I will, I've been to concerts all over the world. I'll argue to this day that it's the greatest concert venue yeah. and there is no second place. Yeah. So I got to go to every concert for there for free for doing very little. I'd put Amazing. up posters with a tape gun around campus and, uh, and then. Who'd you see? Everybody. Yeah. I mean, I, Grateful Dead and Peter Tosh and. You too, and and uh, wouldn't call it Zeppelin, but Page Plant did mm-hmm. a tour through there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I pretty much went to every Red Rocks concert for a three-year period. Wow! Every metal band. I mean, everybody. That's cool. Um, and I knew I was just like I don't even know why I'm going to college. Like this is what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. So then, after college, I moved to New York City briefly with this ex-girlfriend of mine and her and her dad was a William Morris agent mm. and uh, I don't even know what the William Morris agency was so we move into this apartment it was like a seven bedroom seven bath apartment wow and I'm like and I got there before she did like a couple of days before it just worked out that way I'm like this is an amazing apartment and uh and her dad was just hooked up I didn't really know what he did but he was hooked up like if we wanted to see a concert seven bedrooms in New York yeah, with Chopin's piano in the living room. Jeez. Like, it was major. Yeah. So we wouldn't get, if we wanted to see a concert at Madison Square, Madison Square Garden, we wouldn't get front row. We would get two fold-up chairs set up for us in front of the front row. And I'm like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Incredible. So we did that. And to be fair, I didn't really try that hard, but my parents were like, you need to get your shit together. You need to have a job. You can't just be like riding your Harley Davidson around Manhattan and partying <laughs> and while we're supporting you. Yeah. The ice is melting beneath your feet. Get your shit together get a job or we're going to cut you off. And I know you think we won't, but we will. Yeah. So, of course, I tried a little bit, but not that hard. (laughs) And then Jen, my girlfriend, says to me one day, she goes, I'm sick of New York. I go, you know what? I'm sick of New York, too. It's too loud. It's too smelly. It's just too hectic. She goes, do you want to move to Megev? And I go, France? And she goes, yeah. And I go, why? And she goes, I don't know, like, I'm thinking, like, I don't, I don't need to ever work, so I'm thinking we'd just be a, a ski bums. Nice. And she had this place in Beaver Creek, you know, yeah. just, like, next to Vale. And I'm like, dude, I, I can't just be a ski bum. Like, I, I don't have your, your dough. My uh, parents are telling me I have to get a job. And she goes, well, okay, I think I'm going to go to Majef. And it was, like, the most civilized breakup ever. And I'm like, all right, cool. She goes, what are you going to do? I go, I don't, I don't know, maybe go back home to Chicago. Yeah. So... I call her mom, and she's like, yeah, I heard you and Jen broke up. Are you guys cool? I'm like, yeah, we're totally cool. It was, it was great. 
And she goes, you want to come by and talk to me and Lee? And I was like, yeah, let's catch up. So I go to the William Morris Agency, and it's like, I'm like, what the fuck is this place? There's like mm -hmm. hundreds of people here, and he's got an office you could land an airplane in. And, uh, and I sit down with them, and, and, and the dad goes, so what are you going to do? I go, I don't, I don't know. And he goes, do you want to be in the agent training program here? And I go, huh, maybe. Do I have to dress all like all these people and wear a suit and tie every day? And he goes, yeah. I go, definitely not. So he goes, okay. Um, well, do you want to keep the apartment? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, he goes, I'm almost always in LA now. When I'm in New York, I, I need 24-hour room service, and I stay at the I stay at the Waldorf Astoria in the Presidential Suite. I go, nice. He goes, so keep the apartment. I go, for how long? He goes, for as long as you want. Wow. So I'm like, all right. So now I'm living at Museum Tower in this palatial digs, but I know I'm about to be cut off. I got my car in the garage. I got a motorcycle in the garage. I'm like, this is like the life of Riley. If I could figure out a way to make, make this work. But of sure. course, I was a kid, and I just think this is my life, and you, you think that it's always going to be this way. Yeah. So, uh, so eventually, I had, to, I had to leave. Yeah. Checked out a 15 West 53rd. I went back to my parents for a little bit. And I got a job at this management company. It's like two companies operating out of the same office. It was this management company with a few, a few artists and, uh, and then a publishing, like a sub-publishing company with Warner Chapel, mm -hmm. who was run by this guy, Doogie Thompson, who was the bassist for Supertramp, oh, if, wow. if you remember that. Yeah, sure. And I worked there for a few years and I, and I was, you know, I was an assistant and there was really no path. It was the guys that owned these companies right. and me. Yeah. So I did that as long as I could. And then, and I was just tired of those just oppressive winters. And, uh, so wait, did you, cause you started interning in the concert business. Was there any thought to kind of continue oh, I, that? Oh, I left a part of that story out. So I wasn't really making much money. I think those guys were paying me $350 a week. Right. So my side hustle was there was this club, and I don't know if you remember it from here, but there was one in New York, there was one in L.A., and there was one in Aspen. It was called the China Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they built a, David Boyd and David Barrett, the China Club guys, built a massive place in Chicago. It was about 150,000 square feet. Mm. Had three or four stages. And do you remember Pro Jam? Yeah. So you'd have like a house band, and then celebrities would show up and jam every week. Right. So they were like, you're in charge of Pro Jam. Nice. So I'm like, dope. So it's not easy, you know, there's not many celebrities in Chicago, you know, there's like Dave Mason and, you know what I mean, just like yeah. a few people who lived there. So, you know, I wasn't stupid, so I'd look at, uh, I'd look at all the music mags and I'd find out who was coming to town and then I'd hit their management company. So we did pretty well. We got, you know, I got the Black Crows to come and I got Eric mm. Clapton to come and man, do I wish I videotaped all that stuff. So like, I did it and... Uh, and I had and I had this house band of mostly session guys, mm -hmm. and that was fun. And then I just and then I started promoting concerts around the city. Nice. So did a lot of stuff there, you know. On New Year's, you could you know, walk out with a six-figure payday. You know, yeah. it was like all cash. Yeah. And uh, and then I and then I moved here, and I was kind of a lost soul, kind of wandering around. Like I'd spent all my money. I'm like crashing in friends' houses until one day when. Um, I had to go out of town for one day to go back to Chicago for a court date. And that was the day of the 94 Northridge earthquake. So I'm sleeping at this girl's house downtown before I go to the court date. And she's like, dude, you hear there was an earthquake in L.A.? And I'm like, what are you waking me up for? I don't have to be up for an hour. There's always an earthquake in L.A. Mm -hmm. And she goes, do you know where the tenant in Fairfax is? I said, yeah. 
I go, I'm driving home that way tonight. And she goes, oh, no, you're not. And I go, wait, what? And I wake up and I saw, do you remember the freeway collapsed yeah, yeah. on the 10 and a police officer, uh, the motorcycle went yeah, over yeah. the edge and died. And I'm like, holy shit. I come back and this place was just like dust in the air and chaos and aftershocks five times a day. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you remember all that? I was here. Yeah, it was bananas. Yeah. And, but I still didn't have a place to live. So my friend's dad had built this 10,000 foot mansion uh, up on Mulholland. And he's real type A. He's like one of those people, like, you know, you leave a cup and he like grabs it and cleans it. And he's like, Scott, do you have a place to live yet? And I go, no. And he goes, I'll tell you what, my house was yellow tagged. So your house could be red tagged and it was uninhabitable. Yeah. Green was no damage. Yellow yeah. was, you could live there, but there had to be mandatory repairs. Yeah, my girlfriend's house was yellow tagged. Yeah. So this is in this gated community up on Mulholland. And he says, you can stay in the house, just keep an eye on the, you know, make sure the workmen don't steal the pool furniture. Uh -huh. So I'm like, it's amazing. So my nickname for the house was Hotel Beirut because like six chimneys had fallen over, the pool cracked and drained into the mountain. And it was just this like rubble, oh, like fake Tuscan, you know, uh -huh. like tract mansion. Sorry, Jerry. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was like a cheaply <laughs> built mansion. Yeah. So uh, a lot of those up there. And I was broke. I didn't even have enough money to get down the hill and back up. And my neighbors are like Wayne Gretzky, Shaquille O'Neal, Paula Abdul, Isaac Tiger and own Planet Hollywood. And there's this mm -hmm. guy with the long red hair and a motorcycle. And I was, I was so broke. There was a, there was a time where I was living off of uh, the avocados and the oranges on the trees. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, when does avocado season <laughs> go until? And it was like, it was terrifying. Yeah. Uh, so I did that for a while. Um, and then I, you know, I, I kind of told you the rest, and then it became sort of internet. And then, uh, and then, I was working at the studios. I worked at Universal. I worked at Disney, doing IT stuff and consulting for them. I, I, I was part of the feature talent pool at Universal, mm -hmm. so I'd look after all the people who had vanity deals, so like uh -huh. Amblin and Rob Cohen's company and Ivan Reitman's company. And I was just sort of like the concierge IT guy, mm -hmm. uh, which was chill. And, and then, and, and then. My buddy was business partners with Nicolas Cage and ran his production company. And then Nick became like, like kept me busy full time because he had five houses and yeah. his, his, the, the mother of his son and then Patricia and her family. And that, and so I was like the IT guy. And then we started with the websites mm -hmm. and then I just, uh, and then I became a photographer. So I want to get, yeah. I want to get into the story, the photography part, but yeah. Um, you seem like a guy that people just want to help you. No, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes it feels Sisyphean, like I'm pushing a rock up a hill. Sure. But, uh, but you, you mentioned a couple of times some, you know, some dude, it's like, you know, how can I help you or what do you need? Like, what is that? Do you, do you, uh, do you feel like you attract that or is there something... I don't know. I've never, I'm not an asker. Yeah. You know, like I hate, like if someone knows I know somebody and says, can you get me tickets for this? I'm like, I don't ask. And they're like, just ask. It's a friend of yours. I'm like, I'm yeah. not an asker. Yeah. So, and I probably should be a bit more of an asker. Yeah. I'm working on it. But I think it's that, I don't know. In Chicago, when people go out at night, they go out to get drunk and get laid. Sure. In LA, I feel like people go out to further their career and that's just yeah. never been who I am. Yeah. Like I don't ask, I don't ask people what they do in the first five minutes, you right. know. Yeah. Talk about ideas, not people, that sort of thing. Sure. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just sort of non-threatening in that way. 
huh. and maybe not as ambitious as I should be as a result. But I don't know. I mean, I think there's a there's a uh, there's that kind of go getter persona that's like fearless and ask for you know you know Tony Robbins is telling everybody to like boldly you know ask for what you want and all that and I think there's there's probably something to that and there's also something to not doing that and and I don't know if it's like I think maybe to eat any of that taken too far is is a problem yeah yeah I guess I just always err on cautious caution side and just be cool yeah yeah so um how'd you get into photography so I've always been a photographer for my ninth birthday. So my dad had an office in this, you know, in the very beginning of his career. He couldn't afford a warehouse or anything. And he had this little office that was probably the size of this room with boxes in it. And this building that he rented in was this, it was called the 325 West Huron Building. And it was an old kind of deco, classic Chicago building, you know, union elevator operator. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I think it was a 15-story building and about seven or eight stories of it was a camera store, kind of like the Sammies of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, union dock workers, like old Teamster types, like a real kind of OG, gangstery Chicago building. Yeah. And there were photographers in the building and there was a modeling agency and Kodak had offices there. So it was just kind of weird that my dad with this, like, box business selling light bulbs would be in this. Sure kind of photo thing. So I like going to work with them because they had these beautiful marble floors everywhere and I loved skateboarding up and down those silky smooth hallways. Uh-huh. And then one day um, this guy stops me and he was like, hey, can I take your picture? You know, I'm a stranger danger guy. So I go, why? And he's like, no, I'd just like to take your picture. I'm like, well, you got to ask my, my dad. He's down the hall. He's like, well, take me to him. So my dad's like, kid, do you want to do this? And I said, sure. So I'm like, on my skateboard, like showing off which turned into a kind of a brief modeling career. Nice. I, did, I did like a Marshall Fields catalog and some stuff like that, but I wasn't really that interested in that. So I started, so I got to know these photography guys and I'd knock on their door and I'd be like, you shooting today? And they'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, can I watch? And they'd be like, you sit in that stool in the corner and you don't say anything all day, you can watch. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, my ninth birthday rolls around. My dad's like, do you want an air hockey What do you want? You want an air hockey table? I'm like, no, in a dark room. And my mother's like, he's not playing with chemicals. He's nine years old. And he's <laughs> like, he's not going to eat chemicals. So they built me a dark room. And I started wow. shooting. And I tell my parents I was going to a friend's house in my, you know, jaded, jaded white suburbia. I tell them I was going to a friend's house. And I'd get on the subway. And I'd go to the worst neighborhoods in Chicago. And just like projects knock on doors I'd be like can I take your picture I'm this little ginger kid with expensive photography equipment and people were really cool no one messed with me they're like yeah you want to take a picture of my family we're not giving you any money for it and I'm like I don't want any money for it right I'd seen like Bruce Davidson who was this like amazing photographer who shot and so and obviously Davidson's career was never in any danger Mm -hmm. um and you know you take lots of shitty pictures you gradually like anything you know you get better at it but it never occurred to me to turn pro. So, you know, in my, I always had a film camera in my hand. Always, always, always when I went out, which was a weird thing. You know, like back in those days, nobody carried cameras. No, I remember we had that one, one friend that always had the camera. Exactly. Yeah. So, you were that guy. I was that guy. Um, and, I, and I ran around town and, and uh, this and that. And then, and then I got really into golf and I started playing golf all the time. And As I a kid. Yeah, no, no, in L.A. Oh, okay. I never, I, I, always, I always thought it was for, you know, 
just kind of like old old Republicans with fat asses and plaid pants. Like sure. there was like nothing could. Be, but then I discovered it here, and the weather was beautiful, and I just kind of fell in love with the game. Until one day, my friend Misty said, "Do you know Davis Factor?" And I said, "No, I don't. I know his work. He's good." And she's like, "He loves golf too, and you guys both love taking pictures. Mm. You should play golf with him. I'm gonna, set, I'm gonna set you up on a bro date." So I'm like, "Cool." So me and him and his brother and their other brother started playing golf all the time and uh and uh that went on for a long time and then dean who's like the businessman of the do you know those guys not personally yeah so they're they're smashbox studios yeah. smashbox cosmetics davis the, is the photographer and dean his brother is the businessman and they're the great grandsons i think great grandsons of max factor right so we're walking up the 18th fairway one day at Riviera Country Club, and Dean says, so we've, de we've decided you're turning pro as a photographer. I go, you guys are out of your minds. I'm like, I'm finally making a living at something. I'm not starting a career in the arts right. in my 30s. Yeah. And they're like, it's written. You're doing it. So I'm like, how the hell am I going to do that? So he goes, you know our studios? I go, yeah. He goes, pretend you have the same last name as us. All the trucks, all the grip, all the lighting all yours start shooting so I'm like what do you mean start shooting I don't know how to shoot in a studio I'm a natural light guy you know, not a process film and print so Davis says what do you think of the future of this digital photography thing I go well it's catching on consumer I think it's just a matter of time before it's going to catch on in the pro world too as soon as they have the gear that's good enough so what year is that this is 2003-ish okay so I'm like, some people make them, they're very expensive, but some people make medium format digital cameras. Yeah. So Davis goes, here's how it goes, you know a lot about computers, you're an IT guy, and you know a lot about cameras. Why don't you call these companies that make them, tell them that you represent Smashbox Studios and that you're interested in maybe purchasing one for the studio and that you want to test them. So I'm like, good idea, dude. <laughs> so I call Kodak, who made this like Mamiya mm -hmm. RZ-based back. I called Leaf was another company and I called this other company I'd never heard of before called phase one hmm. and they were kind of dumb things and I don't say dumb but I mean literally dumb they weren't they they were backs that went on existing old-school right. cameras they'd go on a Mamiya RZ or go on an old Hasselblad or whatever old analog equipment adapters so I have all three companies send me these machines and I hole up in a studio at Smashbox in Culver City and I shoot and I shoot and I shoot and at the end of a week, I stick my head out, and I'm like, "This is the winner." And it was this. It was the this uh, Hasselblad first generation Hasselblad digital body mm. with their 11 megapixel digital back. Wow. So Davis goes, "I have an idea. Let's test it out. Uh, you're going to come on my shoots. I'm going to teach you everything you need to know about handling a celebrity photo shoot, about directing, about lighting." Uh, and you're going to teach me and everybody else at the studio about how these contraptions work. So I was really the first digital tech in L.A. Yeah. So, and at the time I was dating his studio manager who was also his retoucher. So he's like, we're going to shoot by side by side. I'll shoot some film. You'll shoot some digital. We'll switch. Mm -hmm. And then we'll basically let my studio manager decide which images are the best ones. So she loved it because she didn't have to spend the first hour of every frame cleaning off dust and scanning right. and sure. all this shit. And there was so much more dynamic range. And hindsight now, I'm like shooting a lot of film and I think it's totally superior. But at the, it, at the time, you didn't see detail like right. that before. Yeah. So Davis said to me, he said, he said, just so you know, one day I'm going to fire you 
when I feel like I can't teach you anymore, I'm just going to throw you out of the nest and you got to go shoot. And you have to promise me you're not going to start being a digital tech for other people. I was like, all right, I promise. Mm. So we shot tons of campaigns and tons of celebrity covers and, you know, just tons of advertising. And, I, and, and then one day, I can't remember who we were shooting. We were finishing, uh, I think, an editorial for, a, for a, like a Spanish Vogue or something. And he goes, all right, that's a wrap, everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Scott. You're fired. And I go, wait, what? He goes, I told you this day was going to come. Time to fly, little birdie. Wow. So I'm like, fuck, what do I do? So he's like, start testing. So I'm like, okay. So I take, a, take an unbooked room at Smashbox one day and a model there. And, uh, and I start setting up lights. Then I step outside to smoke a cigarette and I see, I think it was Jill Bensimone. It was like a legendary fashion photographer. And he goes, hey, what are you doing in there? And I said, I'm just shooting a test. And he goes, let me see. And he opens the door. He goes, you're not doing anything in here. He goes, where's your team? Where's your hair, your makeup, your wardrobe? I go, I don't have any of that. I'm just testing. Yeah. He goes, let me tell you something, kid. With his thick accent, he says, he says, if you don't have the best hair, the best makeup, the best wardrobe, and the best lighting, how are you going to knock someone like me off the fence post? And, I, and he was totally 100% right. Yeah. Like, you will never be competitive. So I like, would save up my money, yeah. do a test, do it again. Um, and then, uh, and then I begged Hollywood Life, it was Movie Line magazine mm -hmm. back then, I was like, please give me something to shoot. They're like, we don't even know you, no. And I'm like, give me something to shoot. And they're like, no. And I'm like, give me a quarter page, give me an eighth page. And they were like, no. So I'm like, I'm not leaving until you give me something. So they're like, fine, we'll give you like a quarter of a page with a celebrity. I'm like, who's a celebrity? And they're like, Frankie Muniz from Malcolm in the Middle. I'm like, fine. So I do this like really good picture with him, his publicist, Annette Wolf, who I knew because she was Nick Cage's publicist. Mm. And they started feeding me stuff. And then, um, and then my real lucky break in photography was one of the vice presidents of Smashbox Cosmetics, who I'd worked with with Davis on all these shoots, uh, says, can you shoot beauty like Davis does? And I'm like, well, I've been watching him do it for eight months. Yeah, I can do all of his moves. Yeah. And she's like, cool, because I left Smashbox and I'm with another brand. And I said, what's the brand called? I said, the brand's called Two-Faced Cosmetics. I'm like, oh, I've seen their shit around. They don't do photography. They just have, like, illustration. It looks like it's made for kids. Mm -hmm. She goes, yeah, I want to grow the brand up. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like, so she's like, I want you to, like, study them. I want you to come up, put together a creative brief for Two-Faced Cosmetics. So I'm thinking, Two-Faced, all right, we'll do the... We'll do this sort of Gilligan's Island, James Bond thing. We'll have like one good girl, one bad girl, one blonde girl, one brunette. Yeah. I put together this brief and I go down to Orange County and I pitch this married gay couple. The pitch, I'm like, we'll have one fierce, you know, you know, like one Marianne who's like the sweet blonde and we'll have one bitch blonde. And they're like, we love it. Um, they go, we've never done a photo shoot. What's the next step? And I said, the next step is casting. So uh, they're like, how does that work? I'm like, well, we get a casting studio, and I call all the agencies, and they send out girls, and, you know, I'll get 100 blondes sent out, and I'll get 100 on one day, and I'll get 100 brunettes sent out the other day, and then we'll mm -hmm. pick. So they're like, all right, cool, do it. So I do a casting over at Exclusive Above LA Models, and I see 100 blondes the first day. And, like, the third girl to walk in the door, she was the South African girl with, like, you know, like, ice blonde and like a piercing blue eyes I'm like that's my girl mm -hmm. so I book her the next day I see 100 brunettes I don't see anyone I like 
and the CEO of Too Faced is like, honey, you saw 100 models in LA, you can't find one girl you want to shoot? I'm like, not one. I'm like, can I have another casting day? They're like, this studio costs $475, pick one. Right. I go, no, let me have another casting day. And they're like, no. And I'm like, can we look at girls from New York? They're like, are you out of your mind? Stop spending all of our money. Just pick one. So I'm like, give me a few hours to think about this. So I call him back and I said, I have an idea. I haven't asked her yet. But I have this girl that I think would be really good for it. And they're like, oh, cool. What agency is she with? And I go, she's not a model. And they're like, what? They go, what does she do? I said, she's a singer. They said, that's an interesting idea. What record company is she with? I go, she doesn't have a record deal. They're like, and the guy literally says, are you insane? You're going to put your balls on the chopping block for an unsigned artist in your very first advertising campaign? I go, yep. And he goes, what's her name? True story. I go, Katy Perry. He goes, we've never heard of her. I said, you will. So I called Perry. And I'm like, Katie, what are you doing tomorrow? She's like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm writing with one of my favorite all-time songwriters. His name's Glenn Ballard, and he did Alanis Morissette's record that I love. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you got to reschedule that. She's like, you're out of your fucking mind. This guy's like a huge producer. Yeah. Like, how much money do you have right now, Katie? And she goes, nothing. Like, I have nothing. And I go, I have a job that pays $7,500. And all you have to do is get your picture taken all day and dress up. She goes, I'll call and reschedule the meeting. So I pick up Katy Perry at her little apartment on Burton Way. And, and, and I'm like, you better charm these gay dudes. She's like, dude, charming gay dudes is my jam. That's what I do. <laughs> so she rolls in and charms. As you can imagine, she was still the same person. Sure. And she was just like my, my buddy. I met her when she just moved here and was like, had been doing Christian songs in, in Santa Barbara. And... Uh, so she charmed the pants off them. We did this campaign. It was, you know, thinking back, it was by far the dumbest, riskiest thing I've ever done and conversely, the smartest thing I've ever done. Yeah. So from Too Faced, I ended up getting the Sephora Book of Beauty. I ended up getting Ulta and HSN and QVC and Urban Decay and all these beauty brands. And I never wanted to be a beauty photographer like Davis was, right. but I wanted to do like kind of 80s Rolling Stone. I wanted to mm -hmm. shoot bands and you know, colorful, comedic, ironic, high concept, like tell whole stories in 125th of a second. Mm -hmm. But as the saying goes, you chop down one tree and everyone thinks you're a lumberjack. So yeah. I became like a guy who sold hair and makeup. And Dita was like, like kind of, I met Dita through the first ever paid job I have, which was barely professional, was shooting um, this series called Strip Search for Playboy. Okay. Where my, my fraternity brother, Greg, was producing this home video and Playboy TV series called Strip Search, where we would travel the country from sea to shining sea shooting strippers. Mm -hmm. So he's like, you're a photographer, aren't you? And I'm like, kind of. He's like, do you think you could figure out how to light a white background? And I'm like, yeah, I know pro photographers. I'll ask them what the math is, you know? Yeah. It's just math. Yeah. So I figured that out. So we went on the road to all these cities shooting strippers for Playboy. And the first city we shot in was Phoenix, Arizona. The first stripper I shot with was Dita Von Teese. So, Amazing. yeah, so then Dita, who's kind of, for better or worse, kind of become one of my calling cards, like how people know me, yeah. is she said, um, she's like, you know me, I'm like shy and I don't really get along with all people. I want you to shoot some work for my, I got a deal with Harper Collins. I want you to shoot with me for my book of beauty. And it's going to be the best thing either one of us has ever done. And I'm like, awesome. And those, and those pictures obviously turned out very successful. So mm -hmm. that's the circuitous, happy accident that became my photography career. Amazing. Yeah.
But I also do really masculine stuff. You know, like I said, I shoot Marines and I shoot, I've shot National Hockey League. And you know, so I'm just kind of all, all creative pursuits as we discussed are, are good. Hey, if you're enjoying this one, let's go back into Rebel Radio archives. Check out my interview with Patrick Holick, another amazing photographer. He's a music video director, visual storyteller as well. He has a very different style, aesthetic, and perspective than Scott does, but also great stories of his own. You can check that one out after you finish up here with Scott Nathan. I mean, that's so interesting because, you know, you started off kind of like, sorry to recap our conversation, yeah, yeah. but like you sort of started off like almost happy-go-lucky, like, like I said, people just want to help you and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever, maybe. And then all of a sudden you're like, won't take no for an answer. Like, you Which was this, not like me to do that. Yeah. So where does that come from? I don't know. That came, that was just like a moment of desperation. I'm like, I have nothing to lose. This woman's being horrible to me. She's being really mean. So like, I'll just refuse to leave her office and see where it goes. Yeah. But I don't ever do things like that. And I haven't since. Um, and then these bedtime stories, I've always been. Yeah. So talk about that. So it's on. Yeah. Let's it's, jump into that. It's on that. medium, so, right? What? So, so it's on medium. Yeah. I just started. I just, I'd never even heard. I mean, I'd heard a medium, but I'd never looked at it before. Yeah. Um, so I've always, you know, I've always been a storyteller, like like we're talking right now. But I and I would write stuff, journal stuff. Mm -hmm. I would say mm -hmm. that were really the bones of all of these things. But I never considered showing any anyone these. So I've always had periods in my life where I had just terrible insomnia. Yeah. It was just like Fight Club, like never awake, never asleep. Yeah. And I knew every 24-hour place in LA just because you know it would just drive me crazy to not be able to sleep. I'd sure. go to the 24-hour Good Guys on La Cienega, uh -huh. and then go to that Rexall next door, and you could—I knew all the other insomniacs in town, not yeah, personally. I used to love that Good Guys. But I'd see like Rick Rubin driving around all night. We'd run into each other. And uh -huh. I could tell he was just like listening to music with his turban on. And we'd be like, it got to the point where like I had my <laughs> I had this old sob, and we would like, and he had his Bentley, and we'd like nod at each other. Maybe. So I started writing these things. Um, called Bedtime Stories for Grown Ups to try to put myself to sleep. Mm -hmm. And people have always liked inviting me to dinners and on vacations because, like, I'm the guy they'll, you know, just pull my string and be like, tell everybody the story about <laughs> you and the XYZ. And I would just tell stories. So, like, people would just, like, invite me on these cool vacations. Yeah. So, some people are like, you should write stuff. And I'm like, I do. And they're like, you should post something. I'm like, I don't know about that. So I posted one story. I don't even remember what the first story. I think it was about the golf with O.J. Simpson story. It's great. And like right after the murder. Yeah. And, uh, and I posted it and then went to work the next day, did a shoot. I come home. And like my photography does okay in, in social media. It does pretty well. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see anything like this. This was like 200 comments yeah. and like 500 likes. And I'm like, holy fucking shit. And it's, you know, that stuff, it's like dopamine. It's addictive, that attention. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to edit Another one of my old stories. I do another one and people were like, holy fucking shit. And I just started doing them and people were just like, I fucking love bedtime stories. And then just recently, I get an email from a stranger who doesn't even know anyone I know. It's this woman in Miami and she lives in Coconut Grove, I assume in a fancy place. And she goes, I have a dinner party every Saturday night with 25, 30 people. Mm. And I begin every dinner by reading or making someone else read one of your stories out loud. No way. And I'm like... It's the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, you tell yeah. my dirty stories at a dinner party? And they're like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, this is really cool. So I'm like, all right, maybe I should try to sell these now, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of 
what I'm working on. So I really, I really, uh, I thought it was a series of books. And I have a lot of them, I have 50 done and like another 30 soon to be done. Yeah. So I, th I always thought it was a series of books. And then I, you know, I have, I have friends in different creative pursuits and I have one friend who's an illustrator. And then I saw, did you ever see that Vice video of Ninja and Kanye West? No. Okay, so I don't, I'm not really a big DeAntward fan and I'm not a Kanye West fan, but I saw all these cool people who I really respect posting this video on social media about less than a year ago. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not interested in either one of those guys, but I'm, smart people are posting this. I'm gonna check it out. Mm. So I'm trying to fall asleep, probably on Ambien. And it's Ninja from DeAntward We're telling the story about how he gets a FaceTime phone call from Paris Hilton in the middle of the night. And she was like, my friend wants to talk to you. And I'm like looking behind her on the FaceTime and she's wasted and there's Kanye West behind her. And it's like, he's like, I'm in bed. And Kanye's like, yo, roll through. Have you seen this? And he goes to his, uh, and he goes over to Kanye's house the next day and just tells this amazing story. I'll let you guys watch it. But he mm. goes, he goes to Kanye West and ends up playing basketball with Drake, <laughs> who already hates his guts because he had he had went on Yolandi's Instagram and, and posted a meme that said Drake is a massive faggot. So there's this huge rap war between Drake and DeAntward. And I'm like, that's the format. That is the format for my stories. Yeah. So now I'm definitely high on Ambien. It kicked in. And I didn't remember doing this, but I emailed this French guy who was the producer or the director of this video for Vice. And I totally black out and forget that I did it, but I left the tab open. Uh -huh. So I'm like, if this is as good as I thought it was when I was falling asleep on a sleeping pill, let's see. Yeah. So I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, that's better than I thought it was. And I watch it again. And I'm like, that's better than I thought it was. That's amazing. This, this is the thing. And then I get an email from this French guy and he's like, hey, I got your email. I checked out your store. Did you write all these? I go, yeah. He goes, are they all true? I'm like, they're all true. And he goes, Monsieur, let's work together. So I'm like, cool, should we do a spec? And he goes, no, find somebody to pay for them, but I'd love to work with you. <laughs> so I'm just like, at least people like them. Yeah. So then I started just, you know, I got, got addicted to the attention and I've been posting them as only, you know, kind of a, just been a few months. Sure. But, uh, but, it's, but it's working. So now yeah. it's time to do something with them. So yeah, I think graphic novel, book, animated shorts. That's so cool. Yeah. I love the OJ story. Uh, I, n I never met OJ, but I... Um, I hadn't either before but, or since. But like late 90s, I got invited to a dinner party at Cato's house. Okay. And my girlfriend at the time was like so furious with me that I would even consider going to... Going Cato Caitlin's house? Yeah, yeah. Going to like yeah, hang out with Yeah, people were upset about that. And I was like, you know... But it was the same thing like you is like, I just want to experience. Like, I don't have to agree. I don't have to like the person or agree with, you know, who they are, what they do, whatever. But I want the adventure. 100%. Yeah. Just get a story to tell out of it. Yeah. It's funny. I, I circuitously met Cato back yeah. in those days, too. Once. I mean, he was around. He was. He, he was, was out every night. Yeah. He didn't miss the opening of an envelope. Yeah. So do you remember... Um, was that late night Italian restaurant that everyone would go to after drinking on Melrose, with that on the sidewalk cafe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, was it Luna? It was like oh, Luna. Yeah, it was I think Luna it was Luna Cafe. Lu it was Luna Cafe. Yeah, yeah. I've been asking other people yeah. this, and you're the first person who pulled it. So I'm there with a bunch of people. We had left the whiskey bar at the Sunset Marquee, and we're all just there eating. And I end up 
next to Kato Kalen in a date. You know how it was just kind of like uh -huh. long, yeah, like yeah. all the Everyone's tables like were kind of connected. Crammed in. On yeah. the sidewalk. So I, I got this, um, not my brother-in-law, my first cousin Deborah's husband was like, if you ever see that Kato Kalen out there, I grew up with him. And I'm like, dude, if I ever see him, is this going to be really one of those, like, you met him or do you know him, know right, him? Like, right, you right. for sure know him, otherwise it's going to be embarrassing. He's like, dude, I fucking know him. Yeah. So we're all drunk and we're sitting there and, and we start chit-chatting. I go, hey, do you know Andy Pokras? He goes, yeah, I know Andy Pokras. How do you know Andy Pokras? I'm like, it's my cousin Deborah's uh, first, uh, her husband. He goes, yeah, we went to, we're from Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and we went to the same, we went to school together. We grew up together. So I call up Andy and I wake him up and he's like, hey, Scott, what's up? And I'm like, I have Kato Kalen. And I just hand him the phone. And that happened. That's so funny. And now the only time I will ever run into Kato Kalen is if I'm with people who I don't want to know that I know <laughs> Kato Kalen. Because that's just the kind of like, you know. Sure. Like I'm fine knowing everybody, but it's always that thing like you're talking and then he just shows up. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Should we talk about the OJ thing a little bit? Yeah, I love it. All right. So, uh. So I told you I, w I was really into golf for a while. Mm. So me and my buddy Bob, uh, who's an AD, we go play, you know, uh, we're playing a lot of these municipal dog tracks, you know, these just like local park district courses. And mm -hmm. we go to this, this valley course called Encino Balboa. It's two courses. And we go as a pair. And it, you know, it's kind of a ratty city course. So we go and we pay our greens fees and we pick up our golf cart. <clears throat> we're getting ready to tee off and we go to the first tee. And there's this, like, young black guy, and he's wearing, like, running clothes. He's got, like, a tank top and, like, kind of, like, dolphin shorts. Mm -hmm. And he's all fit and, like, a, a ratty old golf bag. And I'm like, dude, are you a single? Or do you have someone meeting you? Are we threesome or are we a foursome? And he says, uh, no, I'm, I'm a single. And I go, I'll tell you what. Let's all tee it. And if someone shows up, they can go with us. And if not, we'll play faster because we'll be a three. Yeah. And we're like, all right. So we're all, like, kind of, I think I, I hit my ball. And then Bob was getting ready to hit his ball. And I look up in the distance, and I'm like, way see oj unmistakable oj and he does not look like he belongs on this golf course because he sure. had just been kicked out of riviera i right. guess despite being acquitted i guess uh he decided that they're not really the ribs look anymore yeah he's not really the ribs look anymore and he's wearing like a cashmere like tan cashmere sweater vest unbranded with a white polo and like tailored pants and like perfect foot joy saddle shoes without a mark on them, like country club scrubbed and a matching tan visor unbranded. And I'm like, at Balboa Golf Course. It's like, oh, Bob, I email, I mean, I elbow him and he says, uh, he goes, no fucking way. I go, dude, this is gonna be amazing. He goes, I'm not playing golf with that fucking murderer. I said, oh yes, you are. <laughs> he goes, there's no fucking way, Nathan. There's no way I'm playing golf with that fucking murderer. I said, good, then take a cab home. I drove. Yeah. He goes, fuck you. And then OJ, go, OJ, OJ, OJ walks up, boom, and happy. And he's like, hey, fellas, how you doing? And I'm like, hey. And I find myself putting my hands in my pockets. I go play golf with him, but I'm not going to shake his hand. You know? And I could tell there's something. The, the, uh, the black guy that was with us is seething. He's not pleased at all. So I see him. He's got like a cloudy Ziploc bag in his golf bag full of tees and markers and stuff. And he's just down there just like... Uh -huh. I'm like, what is going on here? And OJ looks at him and goes, how you doing, brother? And the guy mutters, I'm not your brother, motherfucker. And OJ goes from all smiles to just rage. His eyes widen and he goes, say what? 
And the guy just stands up, takes three giant strides to him, steps nose to nose, and goes, wow. I said, I'm not your brother, motherfucker. And I'm like, holy shit, this is going to be the greatest day ever. <laughs> and, and it's just like a Mexican standoff. These two guys are staring at each other, just like... And you, I could see the wheels in OJ's head turning. He's just like... Just got off a murder trial. I can't do. There's. I can't get in a fight. There's right. just no way. You just saw this shit going. Like he wants to get in a fight. He's old. You know what I mean? Sure. Old. So he starts walking away, just slowly walking away. And he's got one of those those bag those golf bags that nobody has. Like only pros have, and right. people who get them at celebrity golf tournaments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A big touring bag with his with his name monogrammed on it, and a big Cleveland golf logo. And he's huffing this this big leather bag. And he walks like. 20 steps and then stops and slams his bag on the ground and spins on his heels. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a big fight. And, and, uh, and the guy's still standing there. The guy puts his arms out like he's Jesus Christ and he goes <laughs> like this. He goes, sup? And him and OG are staring at each other again. Then OG just like knows his bluff's been called and he's like, motherfucker. And he walks away. So it was like obviously an awkward first few holes. That sure. guy was still fucking pissed. Yeah, We're not playing golf with OJ, so I'm a little disappointed about that. So, but we saw him all day because yeah. he got he went out with the next group. No so way. like on every fairway, we'd see him just like he'd be like looking over with the side eye, and then that guy'd be just like, yeah, "Fuck you, motherfucker." <laughs> so that was the, my time almost playing golf with OJ Simpson. That's amazing. And it was right after the the criminal trial acquittal. Uh -huh. But before the civil trial had started. Right. But it was all anybody talked about here. Sure, and everywhere. Yeah, of course, everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. So that's so crazy. I mean, I feel like that stuff only happens in LA that you, you run into people like that. Yeah. And thanks for the clap, by the way, on the con woman story. Oh, my God. That was an incredible story. And, and back to my point about people kind of wanting to help you. Uh, yeah, or not, you know, well, or, or, sure. or, or maybe I was a mark. I, you know, I, I will never know. Do you ever, do you ever, um, I'll, I'll, I'll let people read that story and, and they Good. should because it's, it's fantastic. But, um, should we plug the location? Yeah. So it's at medium.com slash, I'm sorry, yeah, medium.com slash at symbol at Scott Nathan. Cool. Lots of great bedtime stories. Thanks. Um, I'm migrating them there. I think I've only got, a, I think I've got eight or nine there, but okay. I've, I've, I've got a lot more that I've had in other places that I'll start yeah. kind of drip feeding there. That's so cool. So do you ever, uh, do you ever live to regret them? No. No, I mean, it's not to say that I don't have any regrets in my life. Sure. Um, no, but I mean like so that, you know, Con woman story or the model apartment. I love that one too. Um, uh, you know, you're kind of like, again, you're kind of like just down for the adventure. Let shit happen. Um, you know, are, are, are there any that you're like, oh fuck, I really shouldn't have done that one? Thankfully, I've come away unscathed. You know, yeah. like I, I don't know if you read it, but my college graduation night one, where I ended up in no. a, I ended up in a maximum security penitentiary. <laughs> okay. On a failure to appear in court on a bicycle ticket, on my college graduation day. Awesome. And you know, 
I'm old. I, you know, this was 1988, I think, when mm -hmm. I, when I, 80, no, 88 or 89, when I graduated. So no pagers, no right. cell phones. Yeah. My fraternity house had shut off their phone for the summer. I had yeah. nobody to call. I get, I dropped my parents off after graduate, after commencement at the Denver airport. It was called Stapleton back then. And I'm driving back in this re really fast. I get clocked for speeding between Denver and Boulder. And back in those days, there wasn't that much between Denver and Boulder. And there wasn't a police station close by. So they're like, yeah, you have an FTA? And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, failure to appear. And I'm like, no, I don't. For what? And they're like, you uh, had a bicycle infraction against a don't walk sign on the hill on campus? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. So how do we just pay that? And he goes, are you offering me, are you offering a police officer money? And I'm like, no. But is there like somewhere I could follow you to and I'll just pay it? Yeah. They're like, no, it doesn't work like that. You're under arrest. I'm like, dude, it's my college graduation night. I'm still wearing my gown. You can't do this. He's like, tell me what I can't do. And I'm like, I got long hair. It's gotten, doesn't yeah, like yeah, me to, not, to, you know, in the me, first place. It's I'm not going to go your way. It's not going to go my way at all. So they tow my car, Ugh. a prison bus that's like, looks like it was painted with a brush, <laughs> painted white. And it's got that steel mesh, like a patio table, like those wrought iron patio tables that like, Mesh is welded over all the windows. And I'm getting on a prison bus with prisoners. Yeah. And I'm like, this is fucking bad. So they take me to this place behind 50-foot hurricane razor wire electrified fences. I'm like, I'm like, you guys, before we go into the prison, you got to let me take my graduation gown off. I'm like, this is not a good, this is not a look. So he goes, oh, okay, let me help you with that. So he takes me from being handcuffed in the, in the prison bus and unlocks them, and I'm like, oh, cool, at least he's being somewhat cool. And then he re-handcuffs me like this, no so I can't get the gown off. So he takes me to this cell and puts me in with these two guys that look like Grizz and Dotcom, these huge brothers. And they're not even, like, scary. They're literally just laughing at the spectacle, like this guy with long hair and a graduation gown. And they're both cracking up, which is extra scary to me. Mm -hmm. And one of them goes, what's up, Judge? I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so I end up there like all day and all night. And I'm like, I want my fucking phone call. And I'm now I don't have a good attitude anymore. I'm like, you're fucking ruining my graduation over a bicycle ticket. You guys are fucking assholes. I, I knew it was already the train had left the station. Like, it wasn't going to help, but it wasn't going to hurt. They had to like. Sure. And, I, and they're like giving me a phone call, but I can't reach anybody. My parents are on a plane. All my friends' phones are shut off for the summer. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm like, I remembered the, the phone number for some reason. We remembered phone numbers more back then because yeah, yeah, we didn't have our phones. And I remembered the phone number for the Boulder limousine service, which was this rickety <laughs> bunch of shitty old, really old limos, but they were cheap. You could get a limo ride to the airport for like $30 and yeah. like a battered old Lincoln. Yeah. So I knew the guy because I'd been using him for years, for four years. And I'm like, Larry? And he's like, who's this? I'm like, it's Scott Nathan. He's like, what's up, Scott? I go, listen. I'm in the Brighton County Prison. He goes, yeah, I know. Because when you call somebody, they're oh, like, you have a call from yeah, a prisoner. Yeah. So he's like, I'm like, I need you to do something for me. And he goes, what? I'm like, I need you to get a cash advance on my dad's American Express. He's like, Scott, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm like, you're not going to get in trouble, but I'm in jail and you're, the, you're my only hope. He's like, all right. <laughs> so he gets a cash advance, American Express, and picks me up in a battered old st <laughs> silver stretched Lincoln Continental. 
as the sun's rising. And I've been in this shitty cell all night, oh my God. yelling, fucking miserable. And, uh, it, and I'm like, I've never been so high. I saw them in the little black and white security monitors. And they're like, you get a limousine to pick you up? And these cops, were, if they hated me before, right. they really hate me now. Sure. They're like, you can't do that. I go, bullshit. You told me the rules are you have to have someone bring the money in physical cash and you, it needs to be someone you know. I know him. He's bringing money. Fuck you. You have to let me out. Yeah. I was a bratty little kid, so I had a big mouth. So I get in the limo and Larry hands me like a stoli on the rocks and I'm like, that was it. Incredible. How did we even get on this subject? <laughs> I don't know, but that's a great story. Anyway. Um, let's talk about confessional. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I want, I want to hear about the concept and how it came together, but, uh, but talk about the music. So every, all the women, you filmed 100 women, right? Yeah, but at 119 at the moment. And everyone listens to the same song. Yep. What's the song? So the song is the soundtrack to, uh, a Miles Davis soundtrack to kind of an obscure French film from 1958 called... Essentiel pour le chauffeur, which means elevator to the gallows. Mm. It's a Louis Malle film. Why'd you choose that music? Okay, so if you haven't figured it out already, I was a bit of a weird kid. So, I was very young. I, my, I'd figured out, they'd sh my parents had shown me how to work their record player. And it was yeah. one of those big, like, zenithy console systems, like the wooden wicker speakers. And I would, you know, once I figured out how to work the record player, I'd go, literally go through my parents' whole vinyl collection one at a time and just listen to them as, all, as curious children do. And I found this record. And I would listen to it over and over and over again. And my parents were like, do you want to listen to the Beach Boys? And I'd be like, they're like, do you want to listen to Sesame Street? I'd be like, this. Yeah. And they're like, why am I listening to this sad, dark yeah. jazz record over and over and over again? So I loved it. So when I started Confessional, and I'll tell you how I, how I arrived there, it needed to be, a, music is such a powerful sense memory for all of us. And it needed to be a piece of music that only I would know. Mm. Because otherwise you don't have a baseline for yeah. the experiment. Yeah. So I'm rewinding to a few hours before that. I, I, I do, I'm doing an interview with a French journalist over a couple bottles of wine at Chateau Marmont. And it's this French guy. And when the French want to talk to me, I'm under no illusion. They don't, you know, if the French want to talk to me, I know it's going to be about Dita somehow. They might pretend sure. to be interested in me, but it's always Dita. Is that right? Even though she's, like, from Michigan slash Orange County, she's, for some reason, like a French icon. Mm. Um, so we're talking, and we get through, like, a bottle and a half of rosé, talking about all different stuff. And he says to me, Monsieur, is it true that the camera never lies? And I go, fuck you. No. No, I hate that expression. He goes, no, it's a very old expression. The camera never lies. And I go, listen, dude, the camera is a tool of deception, always and without exception. He goes, no. What's about war photographers? I go, they lie more than I do, and I sell soap. And he goes, how do they lie? I go, you'll see the cover of Life magazine. It'll be 125th of a second, and it will dictate the entire right. narrative of yeah. an entire war. Sure. And he goes, ah, very interesting. I'm like, it is interesting, isn't it? 
So I finish up the interview and I'm walking down the steps and I'm waiting for my Uber to pick me up. And I said, I said to myself, I wonder how long I'd have to point a camera at someone before you knew who they were. Mm. And right at this moment, my phone rings and it's this actress friend of mine. And I said to her, I said, how long do you think I'd have to point a movie camera at you before anyone, anyone would know conclusively who you were as a person? She goes, I have no idea. You want to shoot tonight? I'm like, of course, every actress always wants to be in front of a camera. I'm like, yeah, give me a couple hours to sober up and come over. So I get home, I throw up a duvetine, which is like a black backdrop on my wall, and I throw up a couple of continuous light sources, and I set up my camera on a tripod, and I'm like, I need there to be music. And that's when I had that revelation about this Miles Davis piece. I'm like, I'm just gonna play this. And I, I had to think of some direction. Mm -hmm. So she gets there, what's the direction? What's the motivation? I'm like, there's no motivation whatsoever. The direction is, be still, like a portrait. Don't take your eyes off the center of the lens. She goes, for how long? I said, we'll see. So I roll camera, I roll music. And Naked? I said, no. Okay. I mean, I said, I said no makeup. So, and I thought, I'm a beauty guy, so I thought it was just gonna be portraiture. Yeah. So we do the one take tight on face and I'm, I didn't want to be in her eye line. So I go kind of down the hall behind a monitor and I roll camera and I roll music. And for the first few minutes, it's like watching a, a bad headshot shoot happen. She's like being, doing this. Right. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, you drunken idiot. This is the dumbest idea you've ever had. This is just fucking terrible. I'm like, should I call cut? I'm like, no, I'm just going to let it run a little bit longer. So she goes from like posing to settling in and I see her eyes widen. I st she starts looking a little freaked out and I'm like, that's interesting. Mm. And then she starts looking panicked. And then at about six minutes in, this guy cracks open and she bursts into tears crying. And I'm like, that's some cinema right there. Yeah. So at around 10 minutes, I call cut. And I said, what happened back there, Megan? She goes, what do you mean? I said, what do I mean? Why'd you cry? She goes, Scott, I'm an actress. I cry all the time. I cry when I'm deciding what to wear to an audition. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this was a terrible idea. It was just time. What? It was just time to cry. Yeah. And I'm like, what a letdown. Yeah. So I'm thinking, Ugh, maybe I'll do another one of these sometime. Maybe I won't. So the next morning, I go to Bristol Farms, which is my little supermarket at Sunset and Fairfax. Just like a little, kind of like a tiny little mm -hmm. supermarket. And I'm getting my morning coffee and I hear my name in a foreign accent. Is that Scott Nathan? And I turn around and it's Rachel Hunter, who's a, you know, like a famous supermodel. Yeah. And we know each other a little bit from around town, but we're not like bros. We've never hung out, but we say hello if we see each other. So she says, how come you never asked me to shoot? I said, Rachel, I would love to shoot you. And she takes out her phone and she goes, great, when? I said, anytime. She goes, fuck you. I said, what? She goes, when people in L.A. say any time, they mean never. I mean never. So if you think I'm too old, and I'm like, dude, I don't know if you know this, but you're Rachel Hunter, the supermodel. She goes, great, calendar's still open, when? Yeah. I said, how about right now? She goes, what are you talking about? You don't have a crew, you don't have any hair, makeup, wardrobe. I just walked my dog, I'm in sweats, and I have no makeup on. I said, good. I just started a project that doesn't allow for any of that shit. And she said, what is it? I said, austere black and white, two takes. Don't take your eyes off the center of the lens. She goes, cool, what's it called? And I go, confessional. And it just came to me. Wow. And what I, what I left out from the first girl was after the take, she goes, you know, I think I could do something. I could be even more authentic and more vulnerable if I got naked. So I'm like, all right, get naked, but don't show me anything. Mm -hmm. Let's do an implied nude. Otherwise, I'll never be able to share it on the internet. And no one right. will ever see it. Yeah. And she's like, well, you could do an art show. 
And I'm like, just don't show me anything. So we did another take and that was great. So then I, I then my, my rule was gonna be like, I only care about the portraits, but if somebody wants to do a nude or an implied nude, I'll leave it out there, no pressure. Because mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a guy who shoots nudes, I never mm -hmm. was. Uh, so I started offering it and surprisingly more women than not, almost everybody took me up on that one. Um, until uh, one day I'm at a, a photography show at the Leica Gallery on Beverly. And I run into uh, Jared Land, who's the president of Red Cinema. Mm -hmm. He goes, I like those weird black and white films you're doing. What are you shooting those with? And I said, my Canon. And I'd only done a few. He goes, what are you using that piece of shit for? I'm like, dude, I don't have $65,000 for one of your cameras or I would use them. And he goes, swing by my office. I go, what do you mean, Jared? <laughs> he goes, swing by my office. So I'm like, all right. So I swing by his office and he's got a desk full of red cameras. Like, you know, it's like Christmas morning. Yeah. He's like, try one of these. And I'm like, okay, like for how long? He said, try it for a few days. Let me know if you, can li if you like it. I'm like, I'm gonna like it. <laughs> when do you need it back? He goes, just try it for a few days. Let me know what you think of it. So I'm dope. So I, I'm a polite, gracious person. So I cram like three confessionals into three days. Yeah. I think I did more. I think I did some in the morning and some at night. I'm just trying to shoot as much as I can while I have this precious camera. And I call him back three days later. I'm like, okay, it's been three days. Do you want the camera back? And he goes, no. And I'm like, how long can I keep it for? He's like, dude, stop bothering me. I'm busy. You think I f forgot that I loaned you a camera? Just shoot it. Enjoy it. I'll let you know if I need it back. Yeah. I have it for like, now it's been like one month, two months, three months. And I'm like, do you need the camera back? He's like, no. <laughs> so they've been incredibly supportive. Red wow. has been uh, like, you know, I, ultimately it's not about sharpness. It's about the performance. Yeah. But now when I have the exhibition for confessional, I can show them at a very grand scale and it's quite beautiful. So I've done, as I said, I think 119 women, the whole spectrum of human frailty. I've shot from 11 years old to 91 years old and the 91 year old, as it turns out, was the only person who knew the music going in oh, yeah. because she was married to Miles Davis in 1957 in oh, Paris when they recorded it. No way. And she was the f world's first black ballerina. And her name was Frances Davis, and she's also on the cover of Miles' record, Someday My Prince Will Come, which is my second favorite Miles record. Cool. Um, and she was great. And, uh, and I've shot, I mean, a bit of everybody. I mean, I have celebrities and civilians and young and old and people yeah. from a size zero to a size 29, um, born-again Christian virgins. I have porn stars. I have... Tiffany Trump and Marla Maples, who asked, cool. who both asked me to be in it. Um, nice. and, and is there a, I mean, it started as sort of spontaneously. I thought I was going to do 10 just yeah. as an experiment and I found I couldn't stop. And so know, where is it going now? Well, yeah, you don't know me very well, but I get bored of, of things very easily. Okay. Like if I'm shooting an ad campaign by the second or third day, I'm just like, oh, all right, enough of this shit. I need to do something else. For some yeah. reason, I don't get bored of these and I can't stop shooting them because humans, huh. and this is humans at their most base, uh, are fascinating to me. So like now I've done so many. So the plan is to do an immersive experience. So beginning in LA. So we've got an aggregate social following of about 42 million people now. Mm -hmm. Uh, L'Officiel magazine, which is like mm -hmm. famous French fashion magazine, they, they've offered or asked me if I wanted to be their first full motion cover. 
and I would shoot in that 9 by 12 magazine aspect ratio with an A-list celebrity, which will take cool. us to over 100 million people. So the plan is to do these immersive experiences that look like a church, but a secular church, like stained glass. And then Red's going to build these um, confessional booths where every guest that comes to the experience can sit for a one-minute version of it, like take oh, their makeup wow. off with wipes, sit, and then they'll get an MP4 file sent to them of their 60-minute take that they can share. Yeah. So the plan is to do this in, I don't know, a dozen, 15 cities around the world. Uh, beginning in LA, I've got a patron who donated me in a, uh, an amazing space. It's a 4,000 square foot black box on Pico. And it's perfect. It's got parking for 300 cars. It's got insurance. It's got a liquor license. So um, working on getting that funded, finding a brand or a patron or both to do this experience and then just to take it on the road. And since there's no language barrier it can show everywhere and i'll yeah. continue to shoot them of, of different cultures and different places that i go uh and do this medicine show so oh, i love it there'll be that there'll be photographs and posters and things to buy um so uh that's the plan and uh and then i've been i've talked to a few documentarians so maybe it's a doc or a docuseries as well mm -hmm. so yeah incredible yeah i mean that's that's just amazing to, to kind of See how that evolves and, and just sort of let, let stuff happen. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's a lot of kissing frogs. Like, everyone's like, yeah. I really love this. I don't know what to do with it. Right. But it scares me a little bit because some people are naked. Yeah. So it's like, it's never really been done before. So I've got to find, I just got to keep kissing frogs till I find the right one sure. who says, I get it. Go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can see some teasers, not full length ones. I haven't released any of those, but you can see some of the teasers for confessional on Instagram at Scott Nathan Editions. Cool. And my and my commercial work is at Scott Nathan Photo. Man, I can listen to you tell stories all day. That was really fun. Yeah. Thank you. How long well, I got to ask this? you. Yeah, they're going to kick us out of here. Okay. But I, I got to ask you a couple. I have a little lightning round before I let you go. All right. That uh, I got to know about. What's your favorite city to travel to? I, my favorite city is Rome. Mm-hmm. Rome is just one of those places you feel like is the birthplace. You feel like you're in the birthplace of civilization because you are. Yeah. And it's just beautiful, and there's art everywhere, and the food's great. And Italians are sensualists like I am. You know sure. that they know the most important thing in life is not making a payment on your luxury car. It's food, wine, sex, sleep, art. Take a two-hour lunch. Take the summers off. And I'm like, the Italians and I get each other. <laughs> That's incredible. Next. <laughs> What's the last great book you read? Um, it's called, I'm going to get the title wrong, but it's called The Secret Language of Trees. Do you know about this book? Oh, that sounds familiar. I haven't read it. It was, it was written by this arborist, like in the Black Forest. And it's not my kind of book. Someone's like, check it out. I'm like, I don't want to read about trees. And I read like two pages of it and I like stayed up all night and then I stayed up all the next night really? and, it's, and it basically just unlocks the mystery of how how trees talk to each other like if a, if a if species of tree is getting eaten by a particular type of beetle it can secrete a terrible tasting poison mm. to stop the beetle from eating it which is interesting enough but what it will do is in like a hundred mile radius it will tell every other tree of the same species to start secreting that same stuff and Incredible. They'll cut down a tree and there'll be a stump. And then all the trees around it see that one of their brothers is injured and they start pumping glucose into the roots of this tree stump trying to keep it alive. Really? And the forest knows not to 
grow to the point that it doesn't let light any light in. Mm-hmm. That'll stop and they'll leave holes in the canopy to let light in to survive itself. So, like, you don't never think of a forest as a living, breathing, sentient organism, but it totally is. And it's a really fascinating book. Now I'm going to read this book. That sounds amazing. Get it. I'll give you a money-back guarantee. <laughs> if you don't love it, I'll buy it back from you. I mean, I think it, it's one of those things, though, that just shows how little we understand. You know, we're so set on having all the answers. 100%. But there's so much that we just don't understand about our world. That's and, cool. And I can always reread Hemingway. I love yeah. his travel logs. Yeah. What movie have you seen the most in your life? Lawrence of Arabia. Greatest film ever made. Every single cool. frame you could hang on, you'd, you'd hang on your wall as a piece of art. Sure. And I met O'Toole once, but I'll let you save that. You can read the story. I've actually yeah, posted it. Okay, cool. Or, or we'll come back to that next time you're here. Um, tell me one decision that changed your life forever. God, so many. I feel, I feel like every decision in a way changes your life forever. Because okay. It changes the course of things. Yeah. That's fair. I think when I just accepted the fact that I was a creative, because coming from Chicago, you know, you'd maybe meet the odd weirdo, but everybody was, you know, an investment banker or a commodities trader uh, or an entrepreneur or a lawyer or a doctor. Like, everybody are professionals. Nobody, you know, the arts are very looked down upon. Sure, yeah. Um, So when I was just like, yeah, I'm not one of you. I'm one of these people out here. Yeah that you mock, that you call the land of fruit and nuts. I'm a fruit and nut. (laughs) Complete this sentence. I don't have talent, I have blank. One word answer. Uh, Could be six paragraphs. I don't know, when people say why photography, and I said, well, if I wanted to work in a vacuum alone, I would have learned how to paint. So I feel like, on one hand, if one person on my team does something bad, it all falls on me and makes me look shitty. But on the other, yeah. you know, on the other, on the other end of the spectrum, I get to take credit for all these people's work. So, you know, if I'm shooting fashion, if I get a great fashion stylist, they make me look good. If I have great hair, great makeup, a great photo assistant, lighting, I look like a genius. And the, and I could do one painting that people don't like, but I could take 700 frames in a day. And if I have one great frame, I look like a genius. So, That's right. community, I guess, is my word. That's cool. So speaking of team, if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? We're not saving lives. There's no loss of blood. I don't get when people like lose their minds on a photo shoot. I'm like, why is anybody screaming at anybody? <laughs> like I, did, I once did this photo shoot, I think it was for Emmy Magazine. I shot the cover of Emmy Magazine and the cast of The Office, American Office. Mm-hmm. And everybody was pretty cool. The actors are cool, but you could feel everything's boiling over. Everybody's uptight. And the publicists, you know, look, I like celebrity publicists, some more than others. Sure. But they think that this is the most important thing in the world. And we're just having fun taking pictures. Yeah. And one publicist, it was John Krasinski's woman, just decided she hated my guts and just started trying to mutiny all the publicists after me. And I, I don't rattle easy. I'm just doing my job. So I'm like, Rain Wilson, Jenna Fisher. I'm like, all right, you guys look great. I'm like, John, you look great. I like your position. Bring your chin up and one inch because he was like casting a shadow from my light. And, my public, and his publicist goes, this guy's a fucking idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. Put your chin back down. And I look at her and I just start laughing. She's like, what the fuck are you laughing at? 
I'm like, why are you yelling at me? We're just taking some pictures. Yeah. She's like, it might just be some pictures to you. This shit's fucking important. I'm like, nothing's important. Like, I got this gig because I know what I'm doing. And she was like, fuck you. And everyone's looking and it's like, there's, that's a big cast. And every one of those people had a publicist yeah. and every one of those people had an assistant. Yeah. And I'm, they're like making a spectacle out of something that does not need any spectacle. So I can be a little, I can be a little shitty too. <laughs> so Rain Wilson was the nicest guy in the world. We're from the same hometown. We went to the same high school, really liked oh, each no. other, no attitude. So I spent a lot of time with him and I took like some great photos of him, which ended up being the cover. I get to Krasinski, I look her in the eye, and I walk up to John and I go, click, 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 got it, thanks everybody. And he got a yearbook photo. Oh my God. Not totally professional, I got the job done, I got the page, but sure. like, just be nice. Yeah, that's amazing. People take this stuff so seriously. Yeah. Right, as if lives are at stake. We're just making art, we're just a bunch of kids on the floor with finger, finger paints, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who would you be most excited to learn appreciates your work. I don't know. This is going to sound cheesy, but like when someone who has no stake in it. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if a kid says they like my work, I really like it. Yeah. I question. I, I question the motivation of everybody because that's what it, that's what cynical adults do. Sure. Like when someone who has nothing to do with our with anything we do yeah. says they really like my work, and I'm like, they really like my work. You know? Yeah, that's so cool. But I guess you know, ultimately you have to make it for you. If you start playing, if you start playing to the to the to the bleachers and trying to anticipate what people want, yeah, you'll always do your worst your worst work. I think. I think if you you have to get out of your depth a little bit, out of your comfort zone. And if you're really uncomfortable, I think you're just about there. Nice. You know, it's like it's like playing a sport. If you play tennis with someone that you can destroy, yeah. you will never get better. If you can play against someone who can kick your ass, you're gonna step up pretty quick. Yeah. A little humiliation, a little exhaustion, a little embarrassment, but then you'll rise up. Sure. That's great. Anyway, thank you so much for having this. Wise it's a lot words. of fun. You're you're I easy to talk to. Thanks, man. That was so much fun. All right. Yo, that was Rebel Radio featuring Scott Nathan. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. I love those stories. Make sure you check out Scott online on Medium. Uh, check out Confessional, all that stuff. Leave us a review on iTunes or hit us with a comment on Twitter or Facebook. We're at Rebel Radio Net. You can also check out videos from a lot of our episodes on YouTube at Rebel Radio Net. Most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.